Being one of John Carpenter's earliest efforts, 1976's Assault on Precinct 13 is sometimes overlooked in comparison to his more celebrated movies. Nonetheless, this homage to Howard Hawks and Rio Bravo by way of an urban western packs just as much thrills, action, foreboding, and intensity as any of his other classic films. And it is a topical film for the current state of unrest that has swept the United States. Therefore, we felt it was a good movie to put into perspective and hopefully to bring some more fans into the fold that may have neglected it up till now. If you got a hankering for cop killing, kid killing, blood oaths, and myriad guns ablazing, hold on to your hats, partners, as we blast open the doors on tonight's episode of Midnight Flicks. Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, Cholo. the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. It's war in the streets. Oh, Jesus, come on. Come on, I'll give you my money. Just don't hurt me. Please, please. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on Precinct 13. This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You want to stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. Me. They're not afraid to die. Any of them. They want to rip us apart, no matter what it costs. It means to the death. Precinct 13. Cut off. Isolated in the middle of a city as a human wave of street killers turns the night into a nightmare. We can't find the damn thing. A white-hot night of hate. Assault on Precinct 13. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late-night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Adam Walker, and joining me, as always, on this cinematic expedition is Patrick Mitchell. So, Pat... Couple weeks have transpired. We 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 took a break. I took a break, more or less. Um, I, I put put it on pause because when we were about to record the 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 next episode, shit 
had just completely hit the fan everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, and I personally felt it was kind of my duty at that point to be on the ground a little bit more here in Seattle with the protests. Um, and so that was the thing. I was like, I just want to see, you know, what I can do out there. I was down at about five demonstrations. I wasn't down there every night because in my opinion, me being there every night wasn't going to in any way change the face or the, the, <laughs> the trajectory of how things were going. And quite honestly, I've been arrested um, quite a few times. It's been a long time since I have been. Um, I'm just not in the mood to get arrested right now. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't blame you. And I also uh, understand, uh, you know, that there's more important things going on. And and uh, we needed to take a, a little hiatus there for a reason. But I'm, I'm glad to be back with you, buddy. Yeah, you know, I if anything, I wanted it to be a show of solidarity to, you know, the 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 demonstrators and the movement that is building right now. I kind of sputtered out a little bit myself. I got I kind of hit a wall with, you know, I had some internal conflicts about, you know, where to go further with my particular position with all this. So I didn't get quite as like in the shit as I thought I would. I, I kind of was fully prepared at, at some point to really be almost at the front lines getting tear gas. But I went up there a few times and I was close to some shit hitting the fan one day, but I actually like most of the time when I left, it was already everything kind of happened after the fact it was it was later in the evening where things would escalate and the cops would just start coming at people so i more or less missed all of it anyways so i'm back there's still things happening today is juneteenth as everyone probably knows so as of uh, this recording as of this recording yes so by the time people hear it it will not be juneteenth and i don't want to be you know i don't want to say anything that would sound just stupid or cynical. Um, but if some of you may remember from the last episode, we had said we were going to do falling down and that's totally fine. And, and, and in some ways it is still topical to what is happening, especially in this country. Oh yeah. But I felt it was a good idea to maybe pivot and you were watching assault on precinct 13. So I was like, let's just talk about that because obviously that is very topical and in more than one way with what's happening. Um, so, here we are back. In our first uh, Carpenter movie. It, a first official one. Now, technically, Halloween 3 was, but, you know, he wasn't at fully at the director's home. But, yes, sure. this is our full first full-fledged JC movie. I, I've never told you this, Pat, but I like to refer to john carpenter is jc because john carpenter is probably my favorite director and so he's like my jesus christ he is uh yeah he is much much holier and uh <laughs> and <laughs> i have a greater connection to to him than than that little bitch on that wooden cross yes than our, than our lord and savior um so yeah so anyways yeah good to be back good to hear your voice pat i missed you we're so, still not looking. We're, you know, podcasts are, are hurting here. 
nationwide. A lot of the ones that I listen to have, have ditched the video months ago. So really, I feel like we're back in our, our hovel of, of just, uh, recording the most bare bones way possible to get this out to people. And so we've had to ditch the video. So you don't even mm-hmm. know that, you know, I'm just sitting here completely naked. And you know what I can, I am gleefully imagining that in my mind's eye right now with my I dog not, in my lap. Oh, that is very, I mean, that's kind of weird, but also kind of sweet. I but guess he's always naked. So like, he's always naked. You know, who's the weird one? That is true. That is a good point. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, typically I kind of just hang around the house shirtless because fuck it, you know. And so I was like half tempted to just do this shirtless, but even I just felt weird even doing that. So I, I put on a shirt. You're a barrel chested boy. I, I like I like to see that. I am. And and even more so as, as this progresses at, at the beginning of <laughs> At the beginning of all this, I was doing my best to actually try and stay somewhat on like a a workout regimen, you know, since the gym closed. So, you know, my partner and I, we were we were doing some things, you know, in the house. We've we've got like, you know, a pretty bare minimum set up here to be able to do some like weight training and things like that. And I was trying to go out and run around the neighborhood. But honestly, like about a month or so in, I just kind of gave up. And so I'm going to be <laughs> and it's funny because before all this happened so there was a year time span between when school ended when I, I finished my program where I was on my ass for like two years and I had a year to kind of get back into like a regular workout routine and kind of start to lose weight again and and then this happened and it's just like at this point <laughs> in really my life set everything back yeah I just like it doesn't take long for me to start just like really packing it on so Anyways, so I, I'm, I'm, yes, the barrel chest is being accompanied furthermore by a barrel gut. Oh, no. Well, barrel nah. body. Barrel body. But thankfully, Charlotte likes bear like men. So, I mean, I'm safe in terms of my relationship. Embrace but. the embrace the Kodiak uh, lifestyle. You'll be you'll <laughs> be fucking going up upstate and catching salmon with your mouth in no time. I would love to do that. I mean, I will do that. I believe in you. You know, and that's the thing. We live in a mountainous, you know, clear water, you know, forested region where I would just fit it. I was up, just up in the mountains the other day. I don't know if you saw, but uh, we all went out and we went shooting up in the mountains. I did not see that. No. Well, so I put a video up of it on Instagram because Charlotte's never fired a firearm. Oh, no, wait, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, and and like Instagram put like a sensitive content filter on it, which I was like, really? Why? Like it's just someone it's just someone shooting a gun at a target. It wasn't in any way I mean it the violence is implied by the gun, I suppose. But anyways, Charlotte's from New York City, which in New York City, civilians they have they have no gun rights essentially. Um thanks to uh Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg. So you can't have a, there's, I mean, it's been that way for a while, but yeah, it's like Chicago. Yeah. So which whatever, you know, I mean, depending on what side you're on with the gun, the gun rights issues, you know, people basically can't have, they can't carry a firearm. And so 
Charlotte's never shot one. And I was like, you know, I feel like, you know, I don't I don't expect, you know, we're not a gun nut family by any means. I grew up with a gun nut. My my dad was way into firearms and my mom wasn't. So it was like this weird dynamic at home. So I never like really got like bred to be like somebody into guns. But I've always like valued them as having as being, you know, you know, a, a personal defense you know, tool that you kind of should know your way around. So I was like, you should learn how to f- shoot a firearm. So we went up into the mountains and shot some shit up. Dude, sounds I'm so far removed. I never held a gun outside of like a video game. My family has never ever been like ever had guns or I, I have, I'm so far removed. I have, I have like no opinion. I'm, I'm just like, I don't even know anything about it. Nor do I know what I would do if I even held a gun. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I actually kind of wanted to know. I mean, and all of this is a very good segue into tonight's movie. So we're not I don't feel like we're getting too off track because this is a, a movie full of guns. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I wanted to know kind of what your standpoint on that was just in the sense that like, aren't you uh, you're a military kid. Wasn't your dad like a Navy guy yeah, or he something was in the Navy? Um, but there. <laughs> feel like that sort of diplomacy is just uh you just you just bombing motherfuckers from like <laughs> you know off, right. offshore yeah. they're, they're not getting into the meat of of hand-to-hand combat necessarily and my dad yeah. was a very gentle and well he still is <laughs> he's still alive uh, he's, a, he's a very kind and gentle human he, he never he never was super aggro or even super I guess I guess that's a misnomer though. You don't have to be like a to be a gun owner. You don't have to be like a fucking aggro nutball. That's true. Um, yeah. But he was he was is seemingly oddly enough like a we oddly like a pacifist that happened to be in the navy for thirty years. I don't know how that works, but yeah. Um, yeah. I, don't understand. I was just gonna say, watching this movie, I was thinking like, what if I had to like defend a, a police precinct <laughs> and someone just handed me like a, a gun, like especially a more complex gun that wasn't just like a, a pistol or something. I, I, <laughs> I would have no fathomable clue. I, we would be screwed is ostensibly screwed. I feel like in that situation though, maybe you, you would learn quickly because you, you, you just never know. But yeah, um, my father was a Marine, so the asshole aggro wing of the Navy. That's true. <laughs> and he was also a redneck, so, you know. Strike two. <laughs> I, it was like the uh, almost uh, antithesis of what you just described. It was a very aggressive um, household. Uh, very aggressive environment, very aggressive man. I saw him getting several fights um, while I was a child. Um, Yeah. And there was always guns around and I learned how to shoot a gun when I was like a child because he taught me how to shoot one in our backyard. So what's the reasoning (laughs) growing up? Like uh, coming from a perspective of, I just, uh, I have no idea. What's the reasoning behind like having guns and or, or, teaching the household how to shoot guns. Is it, is it, is it serious? Is it a comes from a self-defense standpoint or like a recreational standpoint or a little from column A and column B? A little from column A and column B with my father, particularly because he was also a hunter. So, Mm, so yeah. So, and it's also an extension of toxic masculinity, which that was also the case with my 
my my dad. He was a very very emotionally withdrawn. Not to get too deep in my shit, but he was an emotionally withdrawn ex military. Like almost, he's like a militia guy. Yeah, it's very that that prototype, like that uh, Timothy McVeigh <laughs> prototype. Not to say your dad was Tim McVeigh, but like that, like disconnected kind of uh, toxic masculinity and and uh, like super aggro kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and that's the thing. He can't. I would say he is of that species. Mm-hmm. of Tim McVeigh where very anti-government for the wrong reasons, because believe me, I'm very anti-government myself. Yeah, uh, it's like those two, those two coalitions could come together, but then it's like the same assholes who are stockpiling and ready for the government to try to take away their shit so they can march to Washington in their militias and fucking take over are the are just the assholes that want haircuts while we have like you know all these disenfranchised minority groups from teenagers to the gay community to black people actually protesting and doing the shit that these other assholes have always dreamed about wanting to do but instead they're just using all the stockpiling because they want to go to fucking supercuts yeah, it's it's a really, really strange twisted logic that goes behind why people of that ilk, white people of this ilk, choose to protest and take up arms. But also the thing with the recent protests with those type of people, this was all it was all astroturf corporate backed uh, agitation, essentially. So those are real people, but their cause is being supported by dubious very dubious insidious you know puppeteers whereas opposed to with what's happening with the blm and and that uh the situation now is that was more of a spontaneous sort of uprising that's resulted due to years and years of police brutality and violence there isn't specifically one or two groups behind it the thing with like the haircut people is it was the Koch brothers and the DeVosses that were kind of riling up these white folks, you know, to be anti-government, even though the people that are riling them up are fur- fully entrenched in the government. So it's just this weird, you know, just clusterfuck <laughs> that's going on with them. But um, yeah, it it is. It's stupid. It's just like. It also shows it's it's this weird horseshoe sort of thing, though, that shows that, you know, if this country wasn't so entrenched in racial division, because that's what props up our economy in a lot of ways. And this system that keeps people from like being able to live a decent egalitarian life is racism. It's 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 used as like the primary wedge to put in between people to keep them from like uniting because ostensibly the haircut people and you know, the people protesting the police brutality should all be on the same page. They should all be like all uniting as a collective front against That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That makes some sense. Yeah, I know. And that's why we're, we've been fucked for, for a long time. Um, But anyways, um, 
Sorry to get off on that tangent too much. Um, it's not even a tangent because Assault on Precinct 13 is is a perfect segue. I mean, our discussion is a perfect segue into that movie. It's all it's all hand in hand in terms of race writing and and uh, just upheaval and you know change. So right. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's an analysis of, you know, inner city poverty, uh, class issues. Also, you know, if anybody had any doubt that cops were always assholes watching this movie, you know, that gives further kind of credence to this, this idea that cops have always been just brutal fucking pricks. Now, clearly there's characters that we'll get into in this movie that are, quote unquote, the the exception, the good cops, but yeah, the good cop, there's one good cop essentially, but yes, but the whole shit starts off because cops basically take the law completely into their own hands and decide to, you know, wipe out a whole group of, of quote unquote criminals without any sort of due process, which is what we see happening consistently over and over and over and over again with cops. They don't know how to actually like they don't know how to de-escalate and take criminals into their possession to give them the due process that is required of them by the law constitutionally, so to speak. So anyways, so I don't want to get too far into the movie with that point. But yes, all this dovetails well into talking about the movie. Before I do that, is there any other things that you would like to add? I think we're kind of we're we're getting about 20 minutes in here to this intro. I don't know if you want to talk about any other movies right now or if you have any. I I thought this would serve as the intro. I just assumed. Okay. well, good. So that being said, all of this, the synopsis of the movie is there is an abandoned precinct in inner city L.A. in what is considered like ghettoized L.A. um, that is in the process of transitioning over to a different precinct. And it is provided with a skeleton crew of two secretaries and a highway patrol officer um, to see it through the night. And in the midst of all of this, there is a group of death row prisoners that are being transported from one jail to another and one of them gets pretty sick. So the dispatching officers of that group decide that they need to pull off at this precinct to make sure that this guy can like at least get healthier because they, he might be infecting other people. Kind of quarantine him. Also, <laughs> topical for what's going on now. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, quarantine. Yeah. To quarantine him for the evening until they're able to get some sort of doctor to check on him. So the closest one is this precinct, which. We'll get into this more as actually not precinct 13. But anyways, the skeleton, the skeleton crude precinct, the they stop off for the night to remain there and all hell breaks loose. Uh, there is a siege that has been set upon them that is, for whatever reason, to the denizens inside is unknown. They just don't understand why it's happening. I should add that there is a character that it's kind of like this interstitial character that enters into the fray 
um, which we'll get into more when we talk about the movie, that kind of seems to be the person that sets it off. They think that there's a connection between this guy that that seeks shelter at the precinct and why these marauding gangs are attacking the precinct. So that is the synopsis of this movie. Um, I didn't read anything about reviews or anything like that. I don't know if you did it all, Pat. Um, not, not reviews per se, but, um, I know that the, uh, there was a little bit of back and forth because of the, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And maybe we should get this out of the way early. Um, I'd never seen this movie. Um, and I've seen almost all Carpenter for whatever reason, this has just always eluded me. I've never seen the sequel or I'm sorry, the remake either. Um, but so this is uh, an instance in which it's a movie you've seen a bunch and it was my first time watching it. But that the ice cream scene where the little girl gets it, I know that there was a lot of back and forth because, because there's, a violent, there's a violent murder of a child that's just like very blatant and in plain sight and, and the film receiving a rating and the MPAA going back and forth with that. I, I, that was the only thing I really read about it outside of reviews. Yeah, a lot of people took umbrage with that scene. It is one of the few movies to have a scene like that. Um, it really is. Uh, it, it was a. It came as a surprise. It really, it really did. It, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Um, I, I love that scene though. It, that that scene. If you were to put together a compilation of top five greatest carpenter scenes, I think you would have to put maybe top ten. But that would be in there. I, I love it's it's very Carpenter esque. Like it's oh. unmistakably Carpenter. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That is that is a hallmark Carpenter scene, and and that is, you know, that is kind of the pivot uh, on which this movie operates in terms of you know why you know, ultimately like completely shit hits the fan. That there is was, the catalyst for almost everything else that happens, but it's, a, it's definitely a movie of, it's a movie of, of re uh, action and reaction. Everything yeah. is predicated upon uh, the scene before it and what, what happened before it. And very few movies are just like uh, action. And then you see the reaction and then you see the rebuttal and then you see, the the ante being upped from there. It, it is a movie that just um, is a slow escalation into into pure like anarchy, basically. But yeah, but yeah, we'll get into that. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So I was going to say, aside from that being a sticking point for critics, the movie didn't do well initially in the U.S., but it did well in Britain. So. Um, I wonder why. What I read is there's basically there was some cultural connections that the, the the British audience were able to make with the movie that made it more I don't know entertaining to them that apparently was completely glossed over by by Americans. Well, maybe they're more disconnected from like Los Angeles and it being rooted in Los Angeles made people stateside more uncomfortable than, you know, a foreign country that is not as familiar with, with LA and, and it's, it's role in the, in the States. 
Yeah, that could be it. Basically, what I read was here in the U.S., because this movie is essentially a Western. So here in the U.S., people were so accustomed to just seeing traditional Westerns the way they were that when they saw a movie like this, they weren't able to make the connection, whereas British audience were able to make that connection that it was it was an homage to Westerns and that made it enjoyable. Now, why that is the case, I don't know. That's just what I read. Because they're smarter than us. They are. They're, they are more cultured and smarter. Yes, I will give them that. So anyways, that's probably it. So there you go. Um, I didn't read any Ebert shit or anything like that. Um, I would assume because of the child murder that that I okay wait no I did read reviews I know Leonard Malton thought it was really good there was there was definitely some like more um higher profile critics that did enjoy it I get the feeling because Ebert and Siskel were little bitches in a lot of ways that they would have cried about the the child killing scene we just and cut them the fuck out let's we, it's, <laughs> almost, we, it's almost like they're they're thou shall thou who shall not be named I I I like Leonard Malton a lot. I think he's got like a good head on his shoulder in terms of yeah. like he's very down the middle and and does not let his biases affect his his movie viewing. Uh, Absolutely, he's been doing it for forever. Um, but, yeah, and glad. I'm, it it pleased me to hear that you saw that he liked it. That 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 makes yeah. sense. That's on brand for Malton. Right. Yeah. He's always been pretty on point. I've never took umbrage with what his analysis has been. I don't want to completely cut those guys out because they do. They did say things that I think they did have analysis that I think is valuable. But also I, (laughs) but I do like the fact that, you know, they were two of the most, probably the most recognized famous movie critics in the world at one point, at least in the U.S. Movie critics almost didn't exist. They almost invented it. Yeah. So it's just funny to see what guys like that would say and how their panties would get ruffled about certain things. So I don't want to completely cut them out. But yes, otherwise, fuck them. (laughs) Um, You don't want to cut them out because you want to keep putting them on blast. Precisely. That's exactly it. That's why when we started doing this, we specifically wanted to have a fuck Ebert part (laughs) where we could uh, put Ebert up and just, you know, you know, go to town on him. True. Uh, <laughs> so that being said, we're going to move into the meat of the podcast, which is the good, the bad and the questionable section where we talk about the things we like, the things we didn't like and the things that we have questions about in regards to the plot and maybe even some meta sort of content regarding the movie, et cetera, et cetera. So that being said, I will say this, and this is an ongoing thing with me, as you know, Pat, as far as, you know, my appreciation for soundtracks right off the top. I would say at this point, this may be my favorite John Carpenter soundtrack. This is my this is my favorite John Carpenter opening theme for sure. And. That's not to dismiss Halloween. You, I was, you like this more than the Halloween theme? That's what I, well, I was about to say. Right. Well, let me say this. That is amazing. 
unquestionably one of the best, if not to me, the best opening theme to a movie. But it's also like it's kind of like the stairway to heaven of like horror movie themes. You know, it's it's definitely had it's, it's played out in certain ways. I don't ever tire of listening to it, but let's just say for the sake that it's like it's become more culturally enmeshed into things that me, you know, wanting to seek a new high, so to speak, that I've ranked this one, maybe at least equal to or above it. I wow. love the opening. I love the opening theme for this movie so much. And Oh, doggy. <laughs> sorry. The dog, the, hey, come here. the dog is taking exception with this he and I'm jumped, sorry. He jumped out of my lap because daddy got a boner. I was going to say, did you get a boner? <laughs> Let me put him away real quick. Yeah, no problem. Come here. Come on. Inside. Oh my god. I wonder if there's a there's a little tit mouse that I've seen running around in our driveway and I wonder if he uh had spotted him. Anyway. I just um, like the I like that you said tit mouse. I, I like <laughs> I don't know what classification of mouse it is, um, but I'm just going to say that it was a, a tit mouse. Uh, because clearly you saw this tiny mouse with this giant set giant of hands tit. on. <laughs> just one giant one tit. tit. <laughs> that, not, a tit <laughs> not a tit's mouse. <laughs> like, are you an ass man or a, or a tits man? It's a it's just a, a tits mouse. This is just a tit mouse. A singular it tit. Likes one good boob. The other one could be wretched. <laughs> um, that dog barking could be. That was our might have been officially our first Dyla dude. Dyla dog. Dyla dog. <laughs> Dyla dog. Perfect. I love it. And we put him away. <laughs> We told our first, not, we first heard, told our first dial a dude to, to buzz off. Go, yeah, get bent. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so the opening theme, great. Love that so much. Um, and I don't disagree with you. I I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. Mm, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know that's that could be, you know, whatever, an arguable, con- controversial opinion. But that's just how I feel at this point. Um, I... So I, I was going to say some things before this, but I'll say right up front before I get into this th- more thorough discussion about the gangs. I love a good blood oath. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I feel like you don't see them enough anymore or maybe just they're just not something that that shows up a lot in cinema. But that scene where the three warlords uh initiate the when they have their blood oath there like that's sick to me that's like you know hard as fuck and like it's not just like they're just not like just kind of like slicing their finger a little bit like they're like they're these motherfuckers are gouging into their forearm and just just digging out oh like a a faucet of blood into that bowl (laughs) a pound of flesh if you will yeah, Which so that's what I never understood. I take great um, I do like a good blood oath, but I take good, great umbrage with a with a blood oath because I've never understood why you would slice your palm 
open. In a traditional blood oath, they always seem right. like slicing their palm open. It's like the the wound that takes the most time to heal and more often than not, people that are engaged in blood oaths are going to be needing to use their hands. <laughs> like, that is true. Especially if you're engaged in a blood oath, you're probably shoot, you probably are about to be shooting a, a lot of guns. So <laughs> it seems yeah, counterintuitive. But yes, yes, I do love the uh, aesthetics of one. So maybe in that sense, so blood oaths that have been portrayed in other movies, that was this this assumption that was made by the writers and directors, they never actually saw one. Whereas maybe this is an actual, like John Carpenter being the studious man that he is, was able to research that this is actually how a blood oath would be. I was going to say that John Carpenter probably has just been a part of many, a real badass blood oaths (laughs) that he's not fucking around. Like all these cinematic blood oath depictions are coming from panty waste and carpenters yeah. about that life. So he knows what a, how a blood oath is really done. He knows that you don't cut up your hands when you're about to go into battle. Right. I appreciate it. OG. Yeah, for sure. Um, what this discussion has in this movie about gangs and cops, we touched upon this a little bit in the preamble. I think it's good and it's worth, you know, it's, it's, it's to me, this movie, what it does a good job of, even back then, as far as I know, I haven't read too much into John Carpenter's actual like thoughts about this, but it does. It does a good job of showing that the the uh, idea that the cops are just as much the bad guys as the gang. So which is the real truth in the world. Like in, even more so the cops are the fucking, the bad gang. They're the ones that are like, you know, f- fuck things up and then, you know, cause this reaction essentially. And that's what happens. It sets us off in the beginning is these cops just ambush this, this Cholo gang, uh, <clears throat> you know, without any sort of, um, there's no, I mean, I'm sure the, the, the gang probably was wise that the cops were going to be on to him eventually. But, you know, they ambush them. And that is what incites the reaction from the warlords to just unleash all out revenge, not just on the cops, but on the city. At this point, they're like, fuck this. Fuck this city. Fuck these cops. We're just going to we're just going to unleash untold historic mayhem on the city. So the cops fuck up like they did recently, like they keep doing. And then everybody freaks out and (laughs) and then you have a bunch of like shit getting, you know, destroyed and people dying. So. And I think so I think we might view it. Well, I could see why you view it through that lens, but I don't I didn't see it like that. I see I see him. I see the gang as being vehemently in the corner of, I don't see it as more of like a 50, 50 ratio, although okay. I think there's some onus on the police in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but I see the, the gang as being portrayed as the villains of the movie. I mean, sure. Obviously they shoot like a, a little girl in the face. If they were yes. to, if you were to prop up the police in a similar, uh, 
<laughs> in a in a in a similar light, they could have shown he could have shown police, you know, right, gunning down innocent people in a in a in an attempt to hold the precinct as well. But I I I think maybe I could see why you're why you see it in in the context of, of especially what's what's going on. But I'm I'm not sure. I, it's very it's very gray. Uh, yeah, you know. you're right. There, there is more nuance to it. So I shouldn't, yeah, I didn't want to try and come off. Like I was saying it was 50, 50. No, I'm no. just saying that the, 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 the cop the cops are not clearly demarcated as being the good guys. In I this think sense. in the, it, it, the worst that they're portrayed in this is incompetent, but not grossly negligent necessarily because the, the gang, that the, the, the precipice at the beginning of all of this, of the gang getting gunned down by the police, I thought was because they were, you know, they were stealing like a, a fuckload of weapons and, and arming themselves. So yeah. even the justification for why they would take the gang out isn't, uh, you know, isn't much maligned or, or, you know, just some, just to just to kill gang members, he he sure. even purposely puts in a, a reason why they would attack. But sure, it's sure. A, it's a strange it's a strange movie because it's an exploitation movie, um, and that was the that was the thing I wished it had more of. I thought it, I thought it could have used more of what you're talking about. I wish it was more of that movie where it's like who's really right and wrong in these situations. But I thought it kind of delineated more towards uh good cops defending defending uh, you know what's theirs against a a vile group of thugs or at least less shitty cops incompetent less shitty cops you're right the only and, idiot, and, i mean the idiot cops are the two that are like i don't know what's going on <laughs> <Except> <laughs> in the car they never <laughs> to investigate like that that will get the questionable but it's like they just never thought to fucking figure it out or or at least give a <laughs> Give a, a stop by or a swoop by. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, f- for sure. And and I I I pretty much agree with you. I I I, sh- I should have been a little bit more. Yeah. What you're saying is what I wish this movie was more of, though. Right. For sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that being said, yes, there is one clearly good cop, and I do like this character. I was I was gonna say I like Ethan. You have Bishop. to make him likable. Yeah, this movie yes. doesn't work if he if if he's not likable. And the funny thing with that actor, um, the guy who plays who is it? Oh, Austin Stoker. That's right. So when I first saw this movie, I could have sworn that he was an actor that's also played a cop in probably one of, if not my favorite exiles. Uh, oh, wow. Really? Did he which, Okay. So no, but he looks very similar. How familiar are you with X-Files? Uh, very. <laughs> okay. So do you remember the episode called home? Yeah. Which is about, okay. Yeah. It's nuts. It's like one of the most disturbing ones in my opinion. Oh, you think but he's one of the podunk cops that comes, uh, the guy, the Andy Taylor cop, who's actually called Andy Taylor, that guy, that actor I thought was the same actor, but they just look very similar. Yeah. But I could see that. But even because of that, even knowing without, with knowing that he is not the same actor, it colors my perception of Ethan Bishop in this movie as being this kind of 
just like peaceful, good natured cop that doesn't want violence. It definitely goes hand in hand. That probably helped you helped you (laughs) with the Ethan Bishop character. Yeah, like he he's he's not prepared for this sort of situation, you know, and he's he's doing the best he can to, uh, you know, be able to confront the siege with his limited means. So, you know, again, as as a cop, I like him. I think he's a good character and he seems like a, a good person. So. I, I, I like and the you fact to make that character. I'm sure it was intentional, but you got to make that a black cop. Right. I'm not and, sure I buy into it otherwise or well, or it can't be as easily done. Well, and we can get into this a little bit now. I, I suppose we I was going to talk to talk about it more in the trivia, but we can just talk about it now. The two primary influences of on the on Carpenter for this movie were the movie Real Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, so. So you see, obviously, the 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 lead the lead African American character in Night of the Living Dead. You, you could see that being mimicked here. I I didn't even that didn't even cross my view like my perspective on it. But once you said it, I was like, holy shit! Yeah, that's very. Uh, you could see the influence now. Right, right, and yeah, I'll get more into that that influence further down here in in, in the in the category. But yeah, so he, I like him. Also, I really, really like uh, Napoleon Wilson and, and Wells, uh, the two death row inmates that are getting transported. I really like Napoleon Wilson's character a lot. He, he's kind of an iconic character. My favorite in, character in, in the movie. movie. In a lot of ways, yeah. He's just this kind of cool-headed, kind of brooding guy. And um, that scene before he gets put on the transport bus where he – wraps the chain around the warden and yanks him forward. I love that so much because, you know, obviously earlier in the, in the, in the movie that warden tries to get one on him. Like he says, he slipped out of his chair, but he, you know, he elbows him in the back of the head. So it's just him getting his, his little dig in before he goes off to prison. Yeah. I love, <laughs> so I, I love that. Yeah. I really, I really like that character a lot. Like I said, I like both of them a lot, but Napoleon Wilson, you know, stands out a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> I like the demarcation of time that is indicated throughout the movie. And I found out later on that the reason why Carpenter put that in there was because he was trying to give this movie almost a documentary feel, which is pretty cool and interesting. I just kind of like that in movies in general. I don't know what it is about, like when it sets like the time and even like the location of a movie, like, (laughs) I don't know. It's a fine line because it can be, it can, it can, uh, it could be handholdy a little bit. Like I don't want to be have my hand held necessarily, but I also appreciate it. Like I wish, I wish, I wish Christopher Nolan's fucking ass would do this more because I don't know what the fuck is going on in a Christopher Nolan movie. That dude loves time, <laughs> time jumping. Like outside of Memento, yeah. where you almost need it or you literally wouldn't know what was going on. Uh, mm-hmm. He loves the like fucking with time thing. I don't know if you've seen Dunkirk. But I haven't seen Dunkirk yet. It is almost infuriating. (laughs) Like you literally. Oh, I still don't understand Dunkirk. I love Dunkirk, but I I don't I don't understand Dunkirk from a uh, from a linear time perspective. I don't understand it. He just doesn't need to throw it in every movie. I'm not trying to go off on Christopher Nolan, but yes, you you would get along with Charlotte because 
I like Christopher Nolan a lot. I honestly never really had this kind of beef with him until I started dating Charlotte and we were talking about Christopher Nolan movies. But I do notice more and more that he kind of pulls this thing where he tries to make his movies seem smarter than they really are and confuse his watcher, his audience more than they really need to be confused. So I feel like that's definitely a part of his device. Outside of the outside of the Batman trilogy that he did. Uh, he does the time warpy that he fucks with time in every other goddamn movie. And it's like, yeah. the last thing I expected was the Dunkirk <laughs> was <laughs> Dunkirk to have fucking time shit, but it does, it does. And it's, it's jarring. You're like, wait, I thought it was nighttime. Like now, like what is, what is going on? And yeah, it's, it's, it's very subtle in Dunkirk, which is even more infuriating because you don't even know you're getting fucked with until like 45 minutes into the movie. Or at least yeah, I didn't because I'm an idiot. I don't know. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, bro, chill. You don't need to be doing this yeah, in a historical man, piece like that. Just tell me about this. <laughs> tell me about how they they got taken off of Dun- – rescued from Dunkirk in like a normal way, please. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um <laughs> Oh, no, that's all right. I don't mind doing a sidebar about Christopher Nolan. (laughs) Uh, Maybe someday. I don't know. Like this podcast, I don't think is really suit. Well, maybe Memento. We could do Memento for this. Um, I do enjoy Memento. Yeah, it's it's good. I haven't seen it in a long time. It would be good to, you know, do a a review of it. Um, Next on my good list. I got to say it, man. Those secretaries are both babes. And here's the thing. Nancy Keys, who is the one secretary, Julie, I think, who has reappeared several times throughout Carpenter's movies. You know, she's familiar. And I've always thought she was pretty, pretty cute. She seems to be like particularly like Babely in this movie, I think, with like the the secretary outfit. But man, Lee, the other one is is a honey. I was going to say Lee, my lord. Oh, yeah. She's definitely like of the two. She's she's the it girl. But I do like the, the you know, the the combo of the Babley secretaries. And, you know, I was just having like, unfortunately, I had these thoughts like, wow, these two women are really attractive and they're in this precinct with these asshole cops. You can just kind of uh, being a fly on the wall. You can imagine the level of harassment that probably My God, <laughs> probably in 1976. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, Lee just in general is like a really cool character too, because she is this embodiment of being like a very attractive kind of, you know, sexy woman, but is also like a badass. And she yeah, just kind of comes a final grow. girl Ripley quality to her. It's uh, absolutely it's a final girl in an action movie, which is nice to see. Yeah. She never at any point, which is, you know, to stereotype how women are portrayed in like movies of this era or, you know, around prior to present day era, she doesn't get hysterical like Julie does where she's like freaking out and she's willing to like throw the the dad out to the wolves to get fucking attacked to save their skin. But leave through the whole time. She maintains her cool and she, you know, doesn't blink an eye at having to kill the marauding gang. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a really cool character to me. Um, also, speaking of killing, I'm just into cop killing. I like the cops get it in this movie. 
A lot, you know, I mean, not a lot of cops. It's the, it's the precinct cops. Never enough. (laughs) But never (laughs) enough. Some cops get murked in this. So I'm like, that's chill. I'm all right with that. Um, The next point I want to make, this goes back to the discussion we were having about the, the night of the living dead influence. The gang itself is this unstoppable undead, almost entity. And again, that is the night of the living dead influence that is imbuing the movie is there. They don't have any dialogue. They don't speak. They are just like this unstoppable force that just keeps coming and keeps coming. And no matter how many you kill, they keep coming. And I really like that, that they're with the blood oath being in mind. It's almost like to me, like they are a demonic supernatural force that has just been unleashed on the precinct. So I, like, I do. I like the choice. Very smart choice to have them. They have no dialogue. Yeah. And I will yeah. ask you, this is interesting that you've mentioned night of the living dead. So night of the living dead obviously precedes this. Um, but the gang, especially in the beginning, but throughout it, it made me think of dawn of the dead um, yeah. which comes out two years after this. So I wonder if they were like just glad palling around like Romero and Carpenter were just kind of influenced, obviously influenced by each other, but directly in this, because in the beginning of Dawn of the Dead, there's that like siege in the, in the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot, there's, there's not gang members necessarily, but the aesthetics of, of the police going into the projects there and the like, race implications of they're killing zombies and people that aren't zombies, you know, alike yeah. just because they're minorities. There was, a, there was a lot of, I feel like maybe they just passed this, this ball back and forth of just like up in each other or being influenced with one another. I would, I would say with almost full confidence that yes, that was the case because George Romero loved this movie. Okay. He, okay. he was one, he was one of the few people to outright give it a pretty stunning review and just thought that what Carpenter did with this was, was amazing. So yeah, I would say that totally that they were, they were kind of riffing off of each other in that sense. That makes me so happy. And it makes me also sad that Romero has now passed and Carpenter is going to outlive us fucking all just chain smoking two packs a day. (laughs) I don't know how that's possible. Apparently I, I've read more and more over the years that his relationship with Dan O'Bannon was fraught because they were friends at one point and then they had a falling out. Um, But I guess like from Dan O'Bannon's perspective, uh, John Carpenter was an evil entity himself. So maybe he (laughs) maybe Mm. he he has some sort of satanic pact that's going to keep him going even tighter. My God, (laughs) he's he's great. Again, JC, man, he is. He is our he is our Lord. Um, I really to, to get on some tech, technical nerdery here. I love the editing of this movie, especially during that. That prime, I guess it's the I, I would say it's like the penultimate shootout before the big final showdown. Um, it's like in between when the cops get murked and the final shootout there is some pretty masterful editing in that where it just, it kind of cycles through the perspectives of each 
uh, person in the free state going to town on the oncoming horde. Um, yeah, it's great. It, it's really cool. I love it so much. Um, I like the potato scene where uh, Wilson and Wells have to choose between who's going to go outside the precinct to oh, escape. Yeah. I put that in a questionable, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun back and forth. <laughs> um, and then to kind of top it all off uh, for me. And then if you have anything else you want to add, uh, I just, I love that final scene. It's, it's, just the all guns blazing. They have nothing to protect themselves with, but that police sign and the dolly where they're just backing up, like just keeping the horde at bay as long as they can until uh, Bishop is able to shoot the acetylene tank and, and blow them all to smithereens right as the cops, you know, oh, look who, who decided to show up. The cops finally show up. <laughs> To, uh, it's a great yeah. final. I like a good a. I love a good master plan. I, I like a good finale master plan. Yeah, it's really good, and it's again whether whether it's believable or not. It's 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 very exciting to see. Uh, so that's my goods. Anything else you got that you would like to talk about before we move on? Um, you covered uh, most of it. I would I imagine, but um. I would only like to shout out uh, Tony Burton, who plays Wells, because he plays Duke mm. in all the Rocky movies. Yeah. Um, and Tony Burton passed away not too long ago. Um, yeah. And I absolutely fucking love Tony Burton so much. Um, yeah, he's great. He is like my second daddy in a lot of respects. I There's a lot of... Impri- <laughs> <laughs> when Apollo dies in the Rocky movies... He takes on such a loving caretaker relationship with Rocky that yeah. is I absolutely adore Hit the the amount of work he puts in in Rocky Four to get him ready to fight Drago is unprecedented. And not to mention in Rocky Balboa that their relationship of these two grizzled old men that have been through the shit. I I love what that what that what the Rocky series pivots into and um, a lot of it is in great respect to, to Tony Burton and he doesn't get a lot of screen time. So that's, yeah. that's crazy. I probably just wanted to shout him out. And other than that, yeah, I put the soundtrack. I also love speaking of Tony Burton. I love that. Well, I, I really felt like Wells was going to make it. I like, I think Carpenter yeah. does an expert swerve there. I don't know yeah. why, but I just was like in my heart, was I well? I was just gutted when he didn't make it. Uh, yeah. So like, I I really did think Wells was even when he gets to the car. You're like, oh, okay, he's good. Like he's out. Yeah. Like and and it's gonna pivot into him him getting help, but maybe he, he comes up short, and then you just see that dude in the back seat, and I was gutted. That was that was great. Carp, that's good carpenter shit there. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. I'm totally with you on that too. And I love a good Mexican standoff. And this movie just feels like a 90 minute Mexican standoff. It just feels like <laughs> three dudes in a room pointing guns at each other for 90 minutes. I <laughs> like, you know, as obviously metaphorically, but um, yeah, I, I like that, uh, that general aesthetic, I suppose. But um, yeah. that's all my good. 
Well, fantastic. So I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and head off the bad here. I don't really have like bad bads. I know that you had mentioned that your overall kind of impression of this movie wasn't as enthusiastic maybe as mine is. So I'm going to I'm going to leave it up to you to kind of. I have some bad. Um, And I guess my overall impression of the movie was I um, and I think I had texted you this, uh, but. I expected to absolutely love it. And then maybe so my expectations may have been super high. And then I ended up just liking it for what it was. And it ends up being like a Carpenter movie that I just probably wouldn't revisit. I don't, I don't know. It just, it does, it didn't thrill me like I thought it would. And I feel like in the pantheon of Carpenter, there's just like, 10 movies that I would put on before this. Um, but I, I enjoyed it for, for what it, for what it stood for as for then and now. Um, yeah. So in terms of bad, um, despite using silencers, the gang using silencers and despite being in an abandoned precinct, this, this amount of carnage would, still i feel like attract an enormous amount of attention <laughs> yeah the idea that it was just flying under the radar now carpenter does do a good job because he he plants the seeds early and often and throughout that there is so much crime that right. the police are in over their head and they're they cannot keep up with everything so it is not it is not unexplained but the two doofuses that are just patrolling around <laughs> like how do they not how do they not figure it out but i guess maybe this is more realistic that they, they realistically wouldn't because cops are just fucking stupid and lazy so maybe that i don't know <laughs> that plays into that um lawson and we haven't talked about him yet but he is the parent of the little girl that that gets blasted yes <laughs> getting ice cream he, yeah. His whole character is is infuriating. He's in, absolutely he's quote unquote in shock, I guess. But he's just not only completely useless, but a total liability. And the yeah. only reason this shit, this movie is even a movie because he's he like literally brings the gang into this abandoned precinct and then tells the precinct and the individuals in it. Absolutely nothing. He doesn't forewarn. He doesn't warn them. He doesn't tell them shit that he just went through. I don't under that character is undeveloped and and weird. Like he's so weird. Yeah, I I I, I will agree with you. I didn't put it necessarily on there. I, I, I guess I left him more on the questionable uh, side. But yeah, for sure, he's 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 a lame duck kind he's of a, character. He's a bad fellow man. Like, all right, man. <laughs> like you know, like. So he kills he kills one of the gang members. He drag he basically you know is the bait that he's that brings them into there. The least he could do is tell everybody what's fucking going on. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Come Just on. spit it out. Just spit it out and then you can fucking cry in a fetal position. He's catatonic. He he's literally not even a character. Like he gets to the police station and they could have just used a dummy with a coat over it on the bench. I mean, 
you wouldn't have even known he was there. Like, <laughs> you only you only see him again when they're like, oh, we got to move. And they're like, let's let's get fucking Lawson going here. Um, you otherwise so, wouldn't have even known he was there. So I found out a little inside insider uh, information tidbit from Charlotte that could apply possibly to why Lawson doesn't say anything. Mm. Yeah. So a little backstory. Charlotte, for those of you who don't listen to this regularly, Charlotte is my my partner. Um, she was a child actress. I don't what? even think you know that, Patrick. Yes. What the world? Yes. So up until she was about 14, she was in a few movies and some some shows. And then basically around that time, she uh, she retired. Wow. <laughs> but, That's amazing. Uh, but she is a member of the Screen Actors Guild. She's a card carrying member She's of the Screen sack? Actors Guild. Yeah. And we were talking about this. We were, Recently, we've been uh, binge watching The Sopranos. And there was a scene in one of the episodes where there's a nurse who doesn't say anything. She enters the scene. She opens her mouth like she's going to say something to Tony Soprano. It doesn't say anything. Just kind of motions like you got to leave, essentially. Like he's he's overspent his time at the hospital. And he's like, yeah, I get it. And then she leaves without saying anything. What Charlotte said was with situations like that is that's where basically the producer or whoever they don't want to pay that actor or actress money extra money because once a if you're a sag actor once you open your mouth and you you have any dialogue then that puts you in a different pay grade but he's speaking but he's on the phone and he's talking to her in the car he's got like a bunch of dialogue earlier in the movie that's true but i'm just saying maybe the 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 toll, like, you know, his expensive uh, get uh, more, you know, <laughs> by they, the ta- <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe, but I don't know. Anyways, I just thought you're right. So it, uh, that was complete bullshit, maybe on my part, but I thought it would be an interesting <laughs> way to kind of inject that little bit of trivia in there about. Well, yeah, I love I love the trivia aspect of it. Yeah. So anyways. Yeah. Anyways, going back, circling back around to what we're saying, his character is just kind of like shitty and is, yeah, as you said, a liability to the whole group. Operation. I will dovetail that into what are my bads and they're not necessarily my bads. It's more of a of a moral uh, value judgment. The scene is great. We were already talking about it. it. Was it's bad to kill sweet little innocent children that want ice cream? If anything, it's it's you're perfect. You're ruining a perfectly good ice cream. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that could have been that could have been a lot of things. You, a life we're ruining a perfectly good life before it gets an opportunity to get started. It's ruining a perfect good you know, education. No, ruining a perfect, perfectly good tutti frutti, or no, it was like <laughs> vanilla swirl or whatever. Yeah, uh, well, no. So vanilla she tried twist. to get. She, she wanted to get vanilla. Had to go back for the twist. She didn't. Had she to got go back. the vanilla. She didn't. She didn't get the twist. Which I don't know what vanilla twist is. Is it just vanilla and chocolate swirled together? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Well, that serves you right. You went back. For she the, fucked. Went back for the twist, and you you, you got a little bit more. She fucked up because she was basically being like a little mini Karen 
by going back and then yeah, let she me got talk to the manager of this ice cream truck. <laughs> I'm the manager. <laughs> so on the one hand, that sucks. She's actually the actress that plays that that little girl is actually she's very sweet. She's very endearing for the time that she's on screen, and it does make it all the more difficult to see it her really get is hard. taken yeah. out like that. Um, but also maybe uh, at the same token, fuck her for being. Uh, let me talk to the manager uh, person. Sure. Um, what I want to say real quick too, and this is another kind of like ambiguously bad, uh, not again, technical bad, but a s- character assessment is Julie, the secretary, when she implies that they, they need to basically give Lawson over to save them is kind of being a bad fucking person. She's really showing her like true stripes by just being like, I'll fucking, you know, I'll save my own skin. You know, if I have to, by giving over this guy, but on the same token, like you were saying, he's kind of a, he's, he's, he's shitty for not saying anything. So maybe they should have just fucking given him over. Oh, definitely. Oh yeah. But I, but I think this is the thing. This is, this is really truth be told what would have happened. I feel given the fact that that marauding gang was out for revenge, there was no stopping them. They would have given over Lawson and he would have been torn to shreds and they would have still attacked. Oh, well, that's for sure. They would have killed Lawson and they would have attacked the precinct. Um, But at least Lawson would have died for, (laughs) for his transgressions, I guess. Exactly. He would have been the sacrificial lamb. So those are just a couple of things I had to say. What else did you have to say? I, I, well, I the only other bad I have is Lee gets shot in the arm and doesn't even scream, let alone flinch. Uh, so that was not bad. I guess bad ass. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's what I would chalk it up to. She's just a badass lady. <laughs> Literally doesn't even react. She's, it's like watching like uh, Terminator or something. <laughs> yeah, so I would. I, I wanted to kind of talk about so Lori Zimmer who plays Lee. As far as I remember, she's not in a whole lot of stuff besides this. Um, what I had read was she actually really didn't like her performance in this, oh. um, so she refused to watch it, which is crazy to me. Speaking of bad, because she thought she was she gave a bad performance. Oh well, we've seen I thought she did, Lee. Yeah, I thought she did good. I thought she does a she plays a good, yeah, a good stoic. Um, character. So Carpenter makes her like a proto Lori Strode. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you're right. Both final girls. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. So, anyways, those are all. Well, I had some other things like that were bad, but just again, I thought it was just a bad idea that Wells didn't look in the back of the car before he got into it. I know that's what sets it up for that, you know that twist. But if I was in that situation, I think I would have looked in the back of the car. But he's if, not if, wiring uh, a random car, right? I mean, like I wouldn't have yeah, looked in the back either. It's not a random car in the sense that it's, it's on the lot. It's well, near the precinct. I guess from Will's perspective, why would he think like they would have had to have like a gang member in the back of every car in order to cover their bases? <laughs> Cause it's not but like the guy got in afterwards. He was hiding the whole time. Well, yeah, exactly. So because they're re- the only car that had a, a gang member in the back of it. But it was the only car that was near the precinct, like that close. It was it was like right in the precinct, like inner lot. Oh, like okay. it, so from know. my memory, there's no other cars anywhere near it. 
No, the other cars, the other gang members' cars are in a parking lot across the street. Okay. So, and that one, it's implied that it's it's an employee's, it's one of the, yeah, the yeah, other. Yeah, you're right. I see what you're saying. You're right. So, you're right. I feel like, you know, if you're going, if you've already chanced getting to the car, made every effort to be careful, the, the least you could do is kind of peek in the back because if, if you're looking at it from uh, a combat sort of perspective in terms of an oncoming, you know, phalanx, like they're going to try and get as close to their, to their, to the, their opponent's front line as they can. So they're going to have people waiting. I don't know. That's just, but again, I think that's why he didn't, he doesn't tackle it from that perspective. He tackles it from a con that just got a, like a get out of jail free card, literally like he's probably just thinking like, you know, he's made it home free and now th- this is it. Like he's, he's yeah. out of there. Right. I get it. He's caught in the moment. But anyways, that was just a little, little yeah. critique I would add about that particular moment. Okay. So on to, unless you have anything else onto the questions, what questions do we have? Um, what's the likelihood of a prison transport stopping at a local precinct because one of the prisoners is sick? <laughs> Yeah, I that actually I had, I had that in mind too. <laughs> like they would literally be like, "Suck it up, fuckface!" Like we're not stopping right. this dangerous prison transport because you need medical attention that is not visible right now. Like you have a tummy ache. Right, precisely. They wouldn't have given a fuck about that prisoner. No, not <laughs> at all. Let alone to stop and be like, we need someone that is looking for a little bit of aid. Like it was okay. <laughs> that was the most westerny part about it. It was like, howdy, stranger. I'm here to visit your saloon because one of our <laughs> one of our prisoners here that's set to be hung at high <laughs> noon has a case of the tummy rumbles. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and also the 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 guard or the the cop that's leading the 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 transport he talks to bishop and the and the cops at the precinct uh he tells them he says well we're just worried that he might be infectious and he might spread it to the rest of man he would have already spread that shit to all y'all motherfuckers you would have been yeah and that's a weird thing to put in this movie like we what like you talked about at the beginning of it being uh even more appropriate for uh, you know today's times um yeah that's an odd thing to just say in 1976. Like, yeah, uh, he might it might be contagious. What the fuck do you think he has? <laughs> right. Yeah. I just don't feel like that would have panned out at all. Totally on, with you on that one. Um, <laughs> my top of the list was were ice cream men less creepy in the past? Because I know they're kind of creepy now. That guy's got a creepy vibe to a certain extent. He's got kind of a loser vibe to a certain extent. But I wonder if at that point, you know, there with if you if you view the trajectory of certain occupations over time, some started off with you know a pretty benign. Um. Well, they they start off with a benign sort of characteristic to them, a neighborly sort of characteristic, like, you know, you're your local milkman or whatever, things that obviously don't exist these days. But I wonder if at some point the the ice cream man was just considered, you know, he's a good guy. He's the good local. That's that's Charlie, Charlie, the ice cream truck man. Everybody loves Charlie. 
And then at one point that it just become this occupation that is purely uh, reserved for ex-cons and, and pedophiles. <laughs> yeah. Lots of thoughts off the top. I think, <laughs> I think top top three just inherently creepy professions would just be like priest, clown, ice cream man. And that's <laughs> probably like the top three. And then, yeah, yeah, this other weird thing of just like how ice cream men have just stood the test of time where like like someone like you talked about like a milkman like so many professions have gone the way of the dinosaur it's mm-hmm. insane and i think it speaks a lot uh to to america to to the u.s in general mm-hmm. and what we hold dear that ice cream men have survived uh yeah. that, that is a industry that is just kicking still and thirdly I love a good ice cream man that carries a gun. I think you, yeah. <laughs> that's just like maybe I'm not just I'm unaware or naive to the fact that maybe ice cream men in L.A. just carry guns. I don't, I yeah. don't fucking know. I'm yeah. I'm just a, a Hoosier boy. I, our, <laughs> our, our ice cream men uh, do not carry guns for all I know. They carry type two diabetes, but that's about, that's about <laughs> all they have around here. But, right. Uh, yeah, that those are all those are all viable questions. I, I yeah, it was just the whole thing is so interesting. I love that. I love that dude. Like the ice cream man's carrying a fucking gun. She goes back for the the twist, the vanilla twist, like the doof the doofus losses in the phone booth. I don't even know. I don't even know what he's bringing her to do to meet like her mom or like a relative or something. I didn't understand what the there's like a whole conversation about. Uh, about him bringing her and then she doesn't want to meet like a step parent or something. I didn't even understand it. Or a nanny, uh, something like of Jesus that sort. Christ. Boss is such a fucking loser. Um, yeah, he fucks up. But no, those are, that's good. Um, what I was going to say also in terms of just of Lawson being a, a bad dad, a bad yeah. person and a bad dad, when Kathy, that's the daughter's name, I believe, when she gets killed and he goes into a blind rage. He just leaves her there. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. What? Really? You fucking idiot. At least yeah. pick your dead child up and put her in the back of the car and he, then go on the, on the chase. Peels out. <laughs> corpse, yeah. corpse be damned. Or I mean, better yet, there's an ice cream truck right there. You stow put her in the ice. In, yeah. yeah. You put it on ice and then you get going. <laughs> Exactly. So yeah, he just he's he sucks, man. He's Austin bad. sucks. Yeah, he, he's that's why he's in my bed, or was. Um, instead of flipping a coin, Wilson and Wells play potatoes. I know we we talked about this. Yeah. Uh, Wells is afraid. Of, so, but logically, Will, uh, Wells is afraid of losing, and so he mm. picks the literal. Dumbest, most bullshit game <laughs> to determine who hotwires that car. He doesn't like the the odds of a 50-50 coin flip, but he likes the odds of fucking hot potato, which I'm pretty sure is just like you know who's gonna be it if you start with the same person every time. Right. That's a, yeah. That was a questionable decision on Wells's part. I don't like that he he didn't trust the coin flip, so he played like the worst game possible to figure it out. Yeah, I agree. That was that was didn't make much sense, but it made for a little bit. Oh, uh, it was it was a bit of levity in in the movie. No, there. I loved it. Yeah, and that's another good Carpenter 
a, a good that's a classic carpenter bit too um what i had further following up some things with with lawson yeah all of my questions and and slash bad ish is all seems to be surrounding lawson um when he finally catches up to the gang's car and to confront them he shoots the one guy at some point but they all just flee like to me i'd be like man this dude is out outgunned like they all have weapons on them so why did they all scatter and then the one guy who I mean, I get it because for dramatic effect, they wanted the carpenter probably wanted to have this showdown between the the gang member, the warlord that killed his daughter and Lawson. But realistically, what would have happened was they would have, you know, towed up like that. And all those gang dudes would have just yeah. mowed him down. Yeah, that's, be, a, that's a game oversight over. on the on the blood oath gangs part. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, and then we already said this with uh we've already emphasized this why the fuck would he not be able to say anything why the fuck would he go into complete catatonia over this like i'm trying again, to he's, put myself as a as a individual that has a daughter. right i, I want to I, yeah i want to hear your perspective on this because you have children so yes please tell me i don't even i well first first of all i wouldn't run into a, a, a police precinct uh <laughs> I don't know what I would I would I would definitely be crippled with grief but I I it just I don't know. I could maybe see how someone would just be in such a state of shock. Um I can really relate to that because I it's it seems unimaginable to me. It's nothing I, that I would want to even think or live through but um yeah, the the idea that he would go to the extent of of trying to avenge her death and then stumble into a police precinct shows enough like wherewithal that you'd think he would continue seeking justice. But it seems like mm. the justice ends upon collapsing into the precinct. Like he's done everything he could fathomably do. And he is, he is exhausted now and he cannot talk. I wanted to, I wanted to backtrack a little bit. Um, I don't know if you picked up on this. So, well, or sorry, Lawson seems to be dubious of the police prior to this because when he and his daughter are driving up the street and basically it's it's implied that he doesn't know where he's going, she says, well, why don't you just talk to the cops? And he he shuts her down. He's like, no, 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 no. We don't talk to the cops unless well, we're in trouble. That's a very good point. Yeah. So well that's, that's a, well, that's interesting. Well, yeah, it's weird that he stumble fucks his way in there. Then, I mean, but that's a thing when you know people that may be anti-cop when the when the rubber hits the road, they'll go to a cop. So that's and that's that's a current kind of you know dialogue that's been going on, especially with some people that be like, yeah, y'all, you motherfuckers say a cab now, but like you know, like if something happens, I bet you'd be the first ones to call cops. Anyways, but that's a whole other fucking thing. But he acts like he's not he's not particularly trusting of the cops himself, and then he has he has no other recourse. I mean, but to, you can't really blame him, I guess. You know, if if he's near the precinct and there's not anywhere around, really, I think that it was he, more of a seeking shelter, and it was yeah. like the, the nearest thing. Yeah. So, anyways, that's all my questions. Do you have any others? 
The only other main question, which is unanswerable, is, is Napoleon a free man? Yeah, that is something that extends past the... They try to cuff him, um, and, uh, and, and Bishop stops them. And mm-hmm. it's implied that, like, I want him to walk out of this precinct with me. But it doesn't right. seem like he would grant him the, le- the, the, the levity of, like, complete freedom. Um, no, I think it's yes. It's implied he that he wants him to walk out of the precinct with respect and not and not uh, you know dog walked out of there. I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. So what I would like to think if we if we used our third eye into this situation and tried to imagineer uh, a continuation of the story that because Napoleon has represented himself as being a hero, he's he's saved two individuals, one of them being a cop, that that would give him some leverage from being taken or a a pardon. Yes. Or, you know, a retrial of some sort to be knocked off of death row, at least. So or better yet. And this is something I did not mention in my in my good. But I love a a, I love a good uh, my this is my first day on the job. Like whenever someone's like, this is my first day on the job. Oh, no, things are going haywire. I love I love I love hijinks on the first day of a job. Um, but I I like the idea that we just get a spinoff where it's like Bishop and Wilson. Like they just give Wilson like an honorary badge and he knows right. the mind of a criminal. So him and Bishop are like hitting the streets as partners, tackle crime. Yes. And Wilson's methods are a little unorthodox, but they keep them <laughs> around. Absolutely. So, yeah, a buddy cop. Uh, Assault on Precinct 14. Yes. A buddy, yeah, buddy cop, lethal weapon sort of scenario. That would be great. We should do a lethal weapon on this, by the way. Uh, lethal yeah, weapon four that. is my favorite. So there you go. Anybody got a smoke? Got a light? Okay, so we got that all wrapped up. We're going to move on to our awards and categories section of the show. To top it off with, we're going to discuss our favorite quotes. Yes? Yes. Uh, And this is another situation, as we've iterated, reiterated many times throughout this podcast, is the bad guys usually have the best lines. And when I say bad guys, I say it loosely because the bad guys I'm talking about here are – Napoleon Wilson and Wells. Um, yeah, and they're mm, ambiguously. They're bad, not really yeah. bad guys. They're, they're anti-heroes, if anything. Um, so in that sense, I feel like the, the meat of it is 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 those guys. Uh, right off the top, there is, of course, the legendary Napoleon Wilson got a smoke quote that <laughs> reappears throughout the movie. Um, that's all I put the, down was anybody got a smoke. It's literally my favorite line. It's great. Um, and to jump ahead to the trivia a little bit, that apparently was John Carpenter's homage, another homage to some Westerns. Um, oh. this movie is basically like, this is John Carpenter's love letter to Westerns essentially. Uh, because that line had been used throughout one other Western. I'll have to relook it up. Uh, not Rio Bravo. Uh, and he just he put it in this movie. It's it's like an it's like an on it's a running joke in some western that he put in here. Um, 
the other one is my favorite. This is early in the movie is when Bishop gets to the precinct and Lee offers him coffee and she just says black. And he says for over 30 years now, (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a really good one. Which leads me to the question. This is a questionable. He says for over 30 years, that dude is definitely way over 30 in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, so anyways, well, I, crack, I guess. I, don't know. I mean, it's it, true. Um, so <laughs> the other one I really liked is from Wells. Uh, when he says, look at that, two cops wishing me luck. I'm doomed, which is true. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Uh, spo- spoiler alert. Or, uh, I know he is doomed. Actually. That's true. That's true. Um, wh- another Wilson one. I was born out of time. That's a good one. That's a really good uh, one. Uh, let's see. Oh, another one. I didn't write this down, but I'm looking at my my laptop. In my situation, days are like women. Each one's so damn precious, but they all end up leaving you. Oh, just, that's, a, that's a real good, that's a Western quote, too. Oh, that's so Western. And it just goes to show that that that's why Napoleon's so cool is he's he's kind of a complex character. He he's he's what we're led to believe is is a is a murderer. He's on death row for murdering someone or some some collection of people but he's a sensitive man you can tell at the same time he's a brooding man he's a he's an insightful man he's one of those archetypical insightful convicts yeah. that has a, a certain poetic aspect to him that i really like a he's lot the old guard in the prison that like no nobody everyone knows not to fuck with but like they're granted a you know a certain uh, amount of of privilege just because they're so old and badass Right, exactly. They, they they they've got some wear and tear on them. They they've they've been around the track quite a bit. Um, another one that kind of re, it's a, a recurring um, quote that gets cycled through a, a few characters. Uh, one notably at the end, where Bishop is talking to Wilson before they go out of the precinct. Uh, Wilson says, "What does he say?" Um, oh, Bishop says. Basically, he says it would be an honor to walk out with you. And Wilson says, oh, I know it would be. <laughs> and they kind of chuckle. And Bishop says, you're pretty, you're pretty fancy, Wilson. <laughs> and that was said earlier. Uh, and that is, the, sets up the buddy cop uh, sequel. And there you go. And they ride off into the sunset. Exactly. There's a bunch of other ones, but those are the top ones for me. Um, okay. So. Did you spot yourself a dick? I did. I think we're going to agree on this. We kind of already talked about it, but you tell me. Did you spot yourself a dick? Yeah. Uh, I already gushingly went over Tony Burton, but um, yeah. yeah, Tony Burton as well. And I, I won't go back into because my eyes will start to well up uh, his relationship with Rocky. So, yeah, we. I, I feel like we don't need to belabor that any longer. That was mine as well. Uh, that was that was a, a no brainer from the get go. I was like, oh, it's it's Tony Burton. Uh, Billy Pax, who would be good to swap out with Billy Pax? For me, I think we might be also in agreement in this as well. But for me, it was it's Napoleon Wells, Darwin, we Johnson. Sweeping the categories. Boom, boom. Yeah, that'd be he'd be good in that role, I feel like. I wish in the uh, remake, because all I know about the remake is it's what? Lawrence Fishburne and Ethan Hawke? Ethan Hawke. Okay. Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Who, who's uh, Napoleon? Is Ethan Hawke Napoleon? 
I don't know. I've never seen the remake. Oh, okay. So. Well, yeah. I, I, Billy P. in in a in a I feel like he was born to play Napoleon. That's a great role for him. Um, trifecta, like you said before, this is officially our first John Carpenter. Uh, so this one's kind of a tough one because a man that has so many hits, where do you really, where do you really um, narrow it down? But for me, in terms of staying true to the ultimate goal of this category, which is rattling off um, a three-peat of just bangers, I would say, at least this is, I think, what we would agree on. You may, be, may differ. For me, it was The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing. Oh, boy. This is maybe the hardest one we've ever done. <laughs> it really is. But again, it was easy for me in the sense that I was like, well, they're all three back to back. So there you go. And they're all great. The thing probably being, I would say the thing might be my favorite John Carpenter movie, but that's up for debate. Uh, no, undoubtedly. It's the, uh, it is my favorite. Um, and I think it's better than Halloween. Um, I oh yeah, it 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 is. It really is. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to uh, ring the uh, poser alarm here, but I think <laughs> Halloween's a little overrated. <laughs> like I, I mean, no, I I you know what? I I don't necessarily see that as being a bad claim to make. I so. think it's it's more prolific and groundbreaking than it is rewatchable it is the it is it gave birth to the slasher genre it is the first slasher basically um Mm. and he really he sets a lot of things in motion i think it influences more than it 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 it, it, don't get me wrong it's a it's a expert piece of filmmaking what he does in that is is great it's just you know, I watch the Nightmare on Elm Street movies over and over and over again. I just can't get behind watching that Halloween, the original, or the Halloweens as as much repeated viewings as as its its counterparts. That's interesting, and I and I value that. That's where you sit. I actually really do love Halloween, um, and I do rewatch it. Like I I watch it every Halloween (laughs) without fail. Yeah, I still Um, do. And I love it as a movie. This is my hot take. I don't know if I said this when we did, when we did that episode, but I kind of like Halloween three a little bit better, but that's just me being a weirdo, but whatever. I I think, I don't don't think Halloween three Halloween. The original Halloween is obviously the better movie. Like it's obviously cinematically better. Like just, aesthetically and it's just it's carpenters behind it and, and he's obviously a, a much better bigger genius but um yeah. three is more rewatchable i'd say that because it's just to me and the whole reason why i wanted to do that right off the top and we started doing this podcast was it's just such a bananas fucking movie it's just so weird whereas the first halloween it's not that weird of a movie. It's yeah. It's like you said, it's, it's a, it's a, it sets the bar and is the cast. The, it is the cast from whence all these other movies sprang from. And that can't so, be, you know, said enough. It literally is the mold. <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I don't I don't necessarily think that that's too wild of a of an assessment to make. So, well, the only reason yeah. I say that is because we have to justify leaving Halloween off somewhere. So it's either right. Halloween, the fog and escape from New York, which was 78, 80 and 81, which is. Yeah, that is hard to fathom. Um, but I'm going to go with you and say the fog escape from New York and the thing 80, 81, 82. My God. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I feel like that up with Christine one year later, 80, 81, 82, 83 is fog escape from New York thing. Christine, which that was where I almost made it, you know, I changed it and bumped it up like a movie in terms of, you know, the trifecta, because I love Christine. Like it is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, And when we were talking about repulsion, I kind of mentioned how there was a there was a period in my life where, you know, it wasn't well, I would say one of the better times in my life where I would just kind of rewatch a, a, a certain group of movies obsessively because they were like they provided me with some sort of solace or comfort or whatever. Christine was one of those movies like I would watch it over and over and over and over. Um but I also see where from a critical standpoint, if somebody was to assess Carpenter's output, where they would leave that out. So that's why I, I picked what I picked. So, And I agree with, with what you picked. I just – we'll have to do Christine at some point too, but I just – the character of uh, Arnie Cunningham – I don't know what it is, but like, I just like have this like weird kind of like affection for her, him and his kind of fall from grace and, you know, his obsession with this car. And I don't know. So I won't sidebar into that too much. So there we go. We're we're in agreement on that body count. I got a couple different numbers here. I, I, I referenced a few different things, but originally it's like. I saw 56, but then I saw 59, but the 59 was again, the on screen, like shot, they're dead. That's it. It's not accounting for, you know, posthumous victims, so to speak, in terms of people that got shot and were just laying there and then eventually died. That's what I got. 59. 59. Yeah. I saw 59 on IMDb, which is, which makes me so happy because we keep getting to talk about Waterworld, who was, which was at (laughs) at 67. Still Still hasn't beaten Waterworld. Still champ. (laughs) Which is amazing to think about. Um, Okay. Wiki wormhole time. Um, I lost my outline. What the fuck? Anyways, I think we're, we're, we're good. This is, this is, we're we're in the home stretch. Um, So I got a long list. I'll try and keep it short, though. Um, Originally, this was called the Anderson Alamo. uh, But then, oh my god, I know, right? That that name sucks. But then Carpenter wanted to change it to the Siege, which is which is better for sure. Uh, The only reason why I got it called Assault in Pre Sixteen was somebody, the distributor, went over his head and named it that because they felt it sounded more ominous. And I mean, they were right. God, yeah. yeah. Assault on Precinct 13 has a way sicker title than both The Siege and The Anderson Alamo. Agreed. My dear Lord. Um, So this movie is where the connection uh, got established with Don Pleasance. Don Pleasance's daughters. This is going back to how this attracted a little bit more. Uh, fanfare in Britain. Donald Pleasant's daughters were big fans of this movie, and that's how John Carpenter got to know him, apparently. Really? That's yeah. a r- wild fact. Wow, I didn't know that. 
There we go. This movie was shot in only 20 days and on like a budget of $100,000. So it was was a real budget. An insane prospect. My God. Wow. I know, right? They just really cranked it out. Uh, Some of the gang members were USC students that signed up just to have a little fun. Uh, That's a great memento. Yeah. The score is based off of Lalo... uh, Schifrin's Dirty Harry score and Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, this I is kind of just... the Immigrant now that you say that. Yeah, yeah, the bum ba bum ba but like kind of slowed down. Very much so. It's like a halftime. <laughs> that's the only thing that's missing. So, and I'll get into this here uh, a little bit further down the list. This, it's weird, this, this, this song, that, that uh, sequence of notes has like it's DNA and other things, um, but I'll get into it a little bit more. Um, the blood oath that the gang members engage in, that is a apparently an actual Cholo ritual. And, and once that is engaged in, and this is talked about in the movie, it's a vow to destroy their enemies in full force, even at the cost of their own lives. How fucking badass is that? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, because you remember in the movie, they took the bowl of blood and they just throw it onto the precinct. <laughs> I have not seen. Have you seen Blood In, Blood Out? I haven't seen it. Or Sangre por Sangre. Uh, I, I've not seen it in, in a long time, but um, I wonder if there's if they touch upon they go more into the blood oath shit in that because there's lots of Cholo blood oath shit in that thing. So Yeah, I've never seen it. I just know that there was like a kind of shitty hardcore band from Indiana called Blood In, Blood Out. That's true. Well, if you have five and a half hours, uh, <laughs> sit down and watch it. I, 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 I'm not saying I don't. I, I definitely have it now. So That's true. Uh, um, I hit upon some of these other things while this movie had. Uh, going back to the theme song, so that theme music was also the inspiration for the bass line in the U2 song New Year's Day. Well, that's the shittiest thing to come out of this movie. <laughs> All right. So that's where it's funny that you say that because I, I was interested in what your uh, your opinion would be. I actually like really love early U2 and that song is off the album War and it's like one of my favorite records of all time. Oh, so we talked about <laughs> considering our our gun chat at the top of the show and considering that I kind of got into some gun nerd nerd stuff with the Road Warrior episode. There's some gun nerd talk about this one, too. Mm-hmm. Which I, I thought was I'm helpful. sure there is. Uh, so the gun used by the white warlord during the ice cream truck scene, that is a Mauser C96 semi-auto. So just in case you wanted to know. Gotcha. Uh, in my memory, yeah, yeah memorize store, store that up there in case you ever you know need it. Um, so the the British distributor, the the head of the British distribution company for this film, his name was Michael Myers, and Michael Myers, the character, is an homage to that guy. Are you fucking serious? Nope, that he, is true. He named it after that guy. He named it after yeah. <laughs> What the hell? That's random. Wow. Yeah, yeah, he did. And the the distributor was he was honored. He loved the fact that he got named. Uh, that's the shape. That's the shape's uh, Christian name. The. <laughs> oh, because <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you know it's like yeah. he's you know he, he's referred to as the shape, but also Michael Myers. So it's just like it's true. 
This is weird. Then Michael Myers, okay. if you're nasty. Yeah. Uh, more gun nerd talk. Uh, the shotgun that Wilson's using throughout the the primary uh, siege part. That is an 1897 Winchester pump shotgun, which I have a variation of that myself. Really? Um, it, yeah, it was it was used during World War One, um, but the but <laughs> this obviously uh, didn't age well. Apparently, uh, the German government tried to outlaw it because it was too brutal. Well, I mean, <laughs> if they only had some foresight into what they what things were to come. Wow! Yeah, uh, a little too much. So, a little too much. Uh, there is a John Carpenter cameo. He is one of the gang members that tries to crawl through the windows and get shot. I was going to say, he's like, um, he's kind of like Hitchcock in that way. He likes to kind of not, he, he doesn't have cameos in every one of his movies, but like, he's like ever present. He's like almost mm. a character in his movie without being a character. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I didn't have this on the list. Speaking of Hitchcock, Hitchcock, there was a little bit of trivia that I thought was kind of interesting. I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the movie when Bishop makes it to the precinct and he's talking to Lee in the office there before the coffee, I think, or around that time. And he's talking to her about how when he was a child, his dad sent him to the police station as kind of like a, a learning lesson because he used a bad word. I don't know if you remember that whole exchange, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that was an actual story that happened to Alfred Hitchcock that John Carpenter inserted into the, the uh, script. God, this thing, this movie's got some wild ass facts. This is crazy. <laughs> I know. And finally, we talked about this a little bit. This movie threatened to get an X rating because of the child murder scene. Uh, the MP, uh, MPAA had threatened it, but, uh, what Carpenter did was he said, yeah, fine. We'll cut out, cut that out and didn't and send it to the distributors anyways. So it, it went, it, it flew under the radar and got an R rating. That just shows how much bullshit the MPAA is like, they, I know, right? like take this out. And he's like, okay, here it is. And they're like, thank you. <laughs> like that was, they didn't even fucking check it. That's I know, so fucking, good. fucking dickheads. All right. Well, that's that's that. I believe we're uh, we've uh, wrapped it up. Uh, do you got any other points that you would like to make before we continue Let, let's on rate to this, talk? Rate this bad boy. No, I don't have any. I was gonna let you just vomit out all the facts. That was great. Fantastic. Uh, so again, I think we were a little bit at you know we're we're not quite on the same page with this. Um, I actually really really like this movie a lot. This moves up the ranks in terms of my Carpenter movies more and more. But uh, for me, I would say. <sighs> This is a midnight movie. It's a cult movie, but it's not like way over midnight. There's a lot of, well, I don't know. The child killing kind of puts it. It puts it I think, over. over. I just put. Yeah. I just put twelve. I just, it's a perfect midnight. If, while we're rating it on the clock, I would just put a midnight. Yeah, it's a twelve. It's a twelve to one for sure. The child killing definitely puts it a little bit over for me. Um, in terms of iconography. What? <laughs> so I don't know. I would say to rate this out of five, would you say either for me, it would be either bloody ice cream cones, dead children, um, some sort of like gun. That would be no, maybe we, one of the three. We have continued the, the sweep of uh, categories and being on the same page. I just put blood splattered vanilla twist ice cream cones. 
There we go. So perfect. So out of five, I'll I'll let you lead it off. Out of five blood splattered vanilla ice cream cones, what would you give this, Pat? No vanilla twist ice cream cones because she But it's not. She wanted a vanilla twist ice cream cone. She didn't get it. She got a regular vanilla. I stand corrected. Let me delete Sorry. the twist from my notes. You're right. <laughs> Sorry. Blood splattered vanilla. Okay. Um <laughs> I, I put I put this as a three out of five. Um okay. it it's hard to explain what I really wanted out of it. Um, I think this movie could actually stand to be a little longer. I could, I could stand for more siege shit. Uh, mm. I wish there was more like dig in your heels and really, really stand your ground shit. I, I feel like it's over fairly quickly. It feels like the movies, it just, it, it, when it ended, I was like, I, I could have used more, um, mm. just in general. Interesting. And I don't, mm. I can't pinpoint exactly what I found disinteresting about it. I was, I like, I enjoyed it. It was super fun to watch. I just probably wouldn't watch it again. And uh, if I talk about my favorite Carpenter movies, this may not even come up in, in the discussion, but I'm glad I watched it. So I, I'll probably just give it a, a, a three there. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, I would give it a four. And the only reason why I probably wouldn't give it more is because uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those Carpenter movies that I came to later than the classic ones that I've loved for years. And as I said, the more I rewatch it, the more I, I appreciate it more. It's just more I just don't have as much of a familiarity overall with with it as I do with the other ones. So, yeah, it's a four for me. Great. Good. OK, so that being said. Now, I know, sorry, I kind of hijacked you into talking about this as opposed to what you wanted, but it is up to you. We were going to talk about falling down. Did you still want to talk about that on this next one, or do you got a, uh, something else that you want to bring to the table? Let me look and see if I wanted to usurp falling down at all. Um, because uh, l- let it be known, I I totally am down to talk about it. I don't mind it at all, so I don't want you to think that that's not the case. I'm looking at my list and let's do falling down. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot there of movies that I have on this list, but I just love falling down a lot. It's settled in. And and just to clarify with the listeners, um, our methodology is typically we, we trade off on what movies we talk about. Now with this was an exception where I talked about two in a row. So for the next two, it's going to be you. And then I will talk about the one after that, which will, uh, just to give you well, a heads up, people, we're, we're, we're thinking about taking a little bit of a seasonal break, uh, uh, sort of summer, summer break. So I, I'm going to I'm going to end this this season with uh, the one final movie. So we are we are coming up against the the end of our first season. We did it. We did it, old man. Yeah. By golly, by Job. By Job, so, we did it. OK. This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music today, this episode, is provided by the band Geld, the Australian band Geld, with their track, uh, I believe it's Trench. That's the one I picked. Uh, Courtesy also of Iron Lung Records. Thank you so much. Uh, The fine folks at Iron Lung Records have given us an advanced listen to this. It's an album that's coming out in July. So, gonna get to hear it here. 
That's awesome. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's sick. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. For co-host Patrick Mitchell, I am Adam Walker, and we're going to see you next week with another fun, good time movie. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> dun, da, 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 dun, da, 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 da. That's a movie out there. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah.